Question. What are you passionate about in life? Let me add to that. What are you fiercely passionate about in life? Or maybe I can use a word that's in this passage. Zeal. What are you zealous for? No doubt many things that make us passionate. Many things that consume our thinking. It might be sports. Many people are passionate, fiercely passionate about the teams they support. It might be politics. Many people are passionate about their political views. It might be family, work, any of your hobbies. If someone who knew you well were to answer this question, what are they passionate about? What would they say? What do you love? Like, what, what often consumes your thoughts when you, when you wake up and you, you go through the day, when you're on your own? What, what, what fills your mind? In the passage we're looking at this morning, we're going to see what Jesus, what was all-consuming for him. We're going to see Jesus being zealous for his Father's honor and glory. We're going to see Jesus consumed with love for his people's salvation. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, we, we are all going to be challenged with regards to our own zeal and our love for Jesus, but hopefully as well, we will be consumed with hope as we wait for him. You'll understand the significance of that nearer the end. Now, as we come to this passage, Jesus cleansing the temple, you know what's striking about it? It couldn't be more, in some ways, more different than the passage We looked at two weeks ago, Jesus turning water into wine at Cana in Galilee. Like, just think about this, right? His first sign was set in the tiny, insignificant, quiet town of Cana. This passage is now set in the busy, bustling capital city, Jerusalem. Jesus' first miracle, when we looked at it, it was at the wedding, but it was in many ways, although it was his public ministry, it was in the private setting, and only a handful of people actually saw what he did. Whereas in this passage, it's Passover. Jerusalem is bursting at the seams with Pilgrims who've journeyed up to Jerusalem. Some scholars tell us that the population could go over a million at this time. Jesus will cleanse the temple in the most public of place, in a very public place where hundreds, if not thousands of pilgrims are gathered. There are many more differences, but there are also some really interesting similarities. 
Did you notice that the wedding feast in Cana ended in verse 11 by saying the disciples believed. This scene in verse 22 tells us the disciples believed. Not immediately, but later on. Another similarity is that in the wedding at Cana, we highlighted how it revealed Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Remember the abundance of wine? It's, it was a messianic prophecy that when the Messiah comes, the messianic age dawns, there will be this abundance of wine. We, 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 we saw that it revealed that he was the Son of God. Who else could turn water into wine but God? In this passage, Jesus will reveal that he is the Messiah. He will fulfill Psalm 69, verse 9, Malachi chapter 3. And we will see that he is the son of God because he says it's his father's house. And not only that, there's another similarity. At the wedding of Cana, we said Jesus took the jars of stone that were used for purification. And he had them filled to the brim. And the water turned into wine. Meaning the old order of things was passing away. No longer would you need to ceremonially wash your hands. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, had come to shed his blood so that his people could be cleansed and purified. And in this passage, the old order of things is passing away. The temple, the Jerusalem temple, all that it stands for, all that it signifies is about to be fulfilled in Jesus, the true temple. We'll make further comment at the end of the sermon about how, why John perhaps has these two passages right next to one another. As we work through this passage, three headings, we're going to see Jesus consumed with zeal for his father's honor, his father's house. We're going to see Jesus consumed with love for his people's salvation. And then finally, we, God willing, will be filled or challenged to be filled with zeal and love for Jesus, but also hope. Hope for the new creation. Let's pick things up in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By mentioning the Passover right at the outset, you need to understand this is not incidental. No, this is absolutely central to understanding this passage and indeed the entire Gospel of John. The Passover colors the contents of this passage and the Gospel of John. Remember the Passover? Exodus chapter 12. God's people were living in slavery and bondage in Egypt. God had raised up Moses to speak to Pharaoh, to let the people go so that they might worship him. God performed ten plagues. And the tenth and final plague was the plague of Passover. He instructed his people, take a lamb sacrifice the lamb take the blood of the lamb and daub it on your doorposts and lintels and when the angel of death comes he will pass over 
the homes covered with the blood of the Lamb. But the homes with no blood, the angel of death will enter and kill the firstborn sons. And that's what happened in that fateful night. And remember, Pharaoh let the people go. And God in Exodus told his people, every year you are going to remember the Passover. They were to keep three festivals. The Passover and two others. The one following this one would last seven days. And so as God's people approach Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, this is not incidental. This is absolutely central because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. John actually will mention not just one Passover, not just two Passovers. Some argue three, some even argue four. In fact, it's because John mentions three to four different Passovers, we reckon that his public ministry lasted about three years, three and a half years. Ministry of Jesus begins with him going to a Passover. The ministry of Jesus will end with him fulfilling the Passover. So, so, so the Passover that's mentioned here at the beginning, listen, this is not incidental. This is absolutely central. Now, now in verse 14, we're told that the focal point of those who gather in Jerusalem for the Passover was the temple. The temple, of course, was a place of worship where people gathered to praise God, to pray to God. The temple, you remember, was God's dwelling place among his people. The temple was where people brought their sacrifices to God. They came in holy reverence and worship to God. The temple, you remember, was the place where the glory of God dwelled. Just as we're thinking about the temple, let's just do a little biblical theology on the temple The biblical scholars remind us that the first temple in the Bible is in Genesis, isn't it? The Garden of Eden. The first temple in the original creation. Because there, what made the garden, the garden was the presence of God. Adam and Eve lived, walked and talked, had daily fellowship, communion with God. It's really interesting when you you study God's purpose for putting Adam and Eve in the garden. He told them to cultivate and keep the garden. Those two verbs in the Hebrew are used in Numbers chapter 7 and Numbers chapter 8 to describe the work of the priests. They were to guard and protect the temple. And what's more is in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's this vision, and Adam is portrayed as being dressed in the high priest's garments. God... God's role for Adam in the garden was that he might be a priest. He might protect and guard the garden. You remember what happened? He failed. A slithering serpent came into the garden. What should have Adam done? He should have stamped it on its head with with his heel. But he didn't. He succumbed the temptation. And what did God do? He drove Adam and Eve from the garden in judgment. 
He put angels to protect the way to the presence of God. And then the unfolding narrative of the Old Testament story is that with Moses, after the people of God are liberated from slavery and bondage in Egypt, God says to them, Exodus 25, I want you to build an ark, the ark of the covenant. What, what does the ark represent? God's presence. What's on top of the ark? Two angels. What's that reminiscent of? The angels that guarded the presence of God. Exodus 25 tells us that between the two angels on this golden box was this the lid called the meeting place where on the day of atonement the high priest would sprinkle blood. God's formerly exiled people from his presence by the grace of God were enabled to draw near to the presence of God because of shed blood. Where was the Ark of the Covenant to be kept? In the tent of meeting. In the tabernacle. And then where? In Solomon's temple. And then in the temple that was rebuilt. And here's the, here's the thing. First Kings chapter 8 verse 11. Exodus chapter 40 verse 35. God's glory dwelt with his people at the meeting place. Now as we take all of that together, Jesus, John has told us in chapter 1, is the word made flesh. And he adds this, and he dwelt. And the word for dwelt there is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. You want God's presence? He's Emmanuel. God with us. In him, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is the true temple. Come. And what's interesting, it says... In John chapter 1 verse 14, and we have seen his glory. Now, at the end of the wedding of Canaan, after the first sign, what did the disciples see? His glory. Now, as you keep all of that in your mind, what we have when Jesus arrives in the temple is we have the true temple come. In fact, that's our first reading. You know Malachi chapter 3? That's the prophecy. If you just look over at Malachi chapter 3, what does it say there in verse 2? But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And back in verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And what's he going to come to do? He's going to come like a refiner's fire. He's going to come and purify the sons of Levi. You see, as we see Jesus come to the temple, we see messianic prophecy fulfilled. And Jesus, by the way, comes in judgment. You know, the the, the Passover, God came in salvation for his people, passing over them, but in judgment on the enemies of his people in executing the sentence of death. 
Here Jesus comes to judge. Not his enemies, but his very own people in the temple. Look at what he found, verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So so Jesus comes to the place where God's people are supposed to know this is the presence of God. This is God's earthly address, if you like. And what he finds in this place is more akin to a farmer's market and to a trading floor in the London Stock Exchange. Let me explain what's going on here. Historically speaking, the the scholars tell us that when people travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, before they got to Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, on the Mount of Olives, there would be markets. Men selling animals for sacrifice. Now some people were travelling not that far, so in their hand luggage they may have brought with them an animal. But when they brought it and presented it to the priests who examined it, they would say, that's not perfect, that's not without blemish, you need to go to the market. And others who travel great distance, who didn't bring animals in their travel luggage, they would go to this marketplace to purchase animals for sacrifice. The difference is the marketplace is no longer on the Mount of Olives. It's in the temple courts. It's in the outer courtyard, the, 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 the courtyard of the Gentiles where people from all nations were invited to come. Invited to come and pray, invited to come and know God. These men had tra- turned the temple of God into a marketplace. Now what's interesting is we know that they were overcharging the people. And the temple authorities were allowing this to happen. Added to that, if you were, if you were there and you were going to buy an animal, you, you, you take out your money, and the guy at the market would say, no, 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 we don't take that here. You need to go over to the money tables and you need to change it into money that's allowed in this temple. You know, sometimes when I'm in England and I'm out and about, I've got Scottish money. <laughs> and sometimes they'll say to me, we don't take that here. And I have to tell them, no, this is legal tender. <laughs> But they would say, no, 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 that's pagan money. We want temple money. We want the temple tax in a shekel. We want you to pay for these animals with money that we deem right. And so there'd be a commission. And then the tax. And all of this, instead of this being a place of prayer and praise, it was now a place of profiteering. Instead of this place being so focused and centered on God, it was focused and centered on gold. Instead of these people being about the Father's business, they were about their own business. One of the commentators says, instead of Jesus finding the solemn dignity and murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. So that's what Jesus found. What did Jesus do about it? Look at verse 15. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Who can stand when the Lord comes? In righteous indignation, Jesus drives out all of those who are making a mockery of the temple. Now this is really fascinating. See in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, it's the same word that's used here. And he drove them out. All of them. In judgment, he expelled them from the courtyard, from the precinct of the temple. Jesus here is coming and he's executing his judgment upon his people. Now we need to be clear here. Jesus is forceful but not cruel. One does not easily drive out cattle and sheep without a whip of cords. You know, you can't just herd these things out. Shoo, shoo, on you go, out. No, no, no. There were, there were hundreds of animals. And so with a whip of cords, he drove them out. And in driving them out, Jesus is also saying, listen, the old order's passing away. See all the sacrifices? There's coming a day very soon, and there will be no more sacrifices. For he is the once and for all sacrifice. There is coming a day where people will not need to come to the temple in Jerusalem, but they need to come to the sun, the new temple, the true temple. What was Jesus passionate about? What was Jesus fiercely passionate about? What consumed Jesus with zeal? The glory and the worship of his father. Look at what he says. We've looked at what he's done, but look at what he says. He says in verse 15, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now Jesus there name drops. (laughs) My father's house. What's Jesus saying? I am God's son. John's Gospel is written that we might believe that he is the Christ and the Son of God. Here we are, seeing once again who Jesus is. He is the Christ and the Son of God according to his own testimony. Verse 17 says, the disciples who were looking on, they remembered a psalm that they used to sing in the synagogue probably a psalm they used to sing in family worship psalm 69 verse 9 zeal for your house will consume me they look at Jesus' actions and what they see in it is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture they see Jesus' all consuming zeal and they say this reminds us of the one the psalmist spoke of now if I was to challenge us with a question What are you zealous about? What consumes your thoughts? Would it be zeal for God's glory 
and honor and worship. That's what Jesus was zealous about. It's interesting. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we should never be lacking in zeal. We should be keeping up our spiritual fervor. What for? For God and for the things of God. But thanks be to God that Jesus, the perfect one, zealous for his Father's glory and honor, is the one who leads us and saves us. Now this is beautiful, beautiful, just so you don't miss it. The significance of me telling you about the Garden of Eden being a temple was what does Jesus do here? He does what Adam failed to do. Adam was to guard and protect the presence of God. He didn't. He didn't stamp the serpent. Jesus comes into the temple and he rids it. He guards it. He protects it. He does what the first Adam failed to do. And he will crush the head of the serpent on the cross. So there's Jesus' zeal for his father's honor. Let's think now of Jesus' zeal for, or Jesus' love for his people's salvation. Verse 18, the the, the cleansing of the temple was such a shock that the Jewish leaders, they demanded Jesus' credentials. So the Jewish leader said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And they're saying, Jesus, by what authority do you do this? Give us a sign. Prove to us that you are the Messiah. That you have the authority to do this. That's interesting, right? Jesus' disciples got it. And the Bible's testimony about Jesus' disciples were they're ordinary men, unlearned men. These men learned in the law didn't get it. They didn't discern. This one arrives. He comes in and he purifies and he refines. Now if you thought that to yourself that Jesus' actions were OTT, listen to the words he says to them. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. It's one of those deeply enigmatic statements of Jesus. He says something and the people don't understand it. In fact, they get the wrong message entirely. Are you someone who sometimes gets the wrong message? I heard a story this week, a rather amusing story. Reminds me, it's easy to get the wrong message. So there was this uh, couple who lived in Minneapolis in America, and they wanted to celebrate their 20th wedding anniversary. And so they decided to book the hotel they'd, they'd visited in Florida on their honeymoon. And they wanted to enjoy some sunshine, and so Florida it was, the original hotel it was, they booked it. Now the thing about the couple was they, they lived very hectic lives, and they weren't able to completely coordinate their schedules. And so the husband traveled to Florida on the Thursday, with his wife traveling down the next day. Now when the husband arrived and checked into the hotel, there, there was a computer in his hotel room. And so he decided to send his wife an email. However, he accidentally left out one letter in our email address. Without realizing it, he sent it. Meanwhile, somewhere else in the States, in fact, in Houston, Texas, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. 
He was a church minister of many years. And he died suddenly of a heart attack. And returning from the funeral, the widow decided to check her emails, expecting to find messages of condolences from friends and relatives. But after reading the first message in her inbox, she collapsed. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother lying on the floor. And he also saw the computer screen, which read this. To my loving wife, subject, I have arrived. He read on. I know you're surprised to hear from me. But they have computers here now. And you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I have just arrived. I've checked in. And I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. (laughs) That's a terrible way of making the point. It's very easy to get the wrong message. And these Jewish leaders got the wrong message. They heard Jesus say, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. Look at the response. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? They think Jesus is talking about the earthly temple. Now this happens again and again in John's Gospel. Jesus says something, people totally misunderstand it. Jesus was saying to them, I'm the temple that you will destroy and I will raise it up again. This, you want a sign? I'll give you a prediction. My death and my resurrection are the sign that I have authority to cleanse this temple. Jesus comes to the temple and he's not merely just cleansing it, he's actually replacing it. You see, all that the Old Testament pointed to was him. He was God in the flesh. God, Emmanuel, God with us. He was the one who came to make the ultimate sacrifice. He was the one who would fulfill the Passover festival. And you know what's fascinating? On Jesus' mind, it seems all the time in John's Gospel, is his death and resurrection. In the wedding at Cana, my hour has not yet come. He's thinking about his death. Here he is in the temple talking about these men. You want a sign? I'll tell you a sign. My death and resurrection. Listen, Jesus was consumed with zeal for his Father's glory and honor, but he was also consumed with thoughts of love for his people. He'd come to die for them and be raised for them. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall have eternal life and shall not perish. But these men, they, they didn't understand, they didn't get the message, but you know what's tragic is their actions would ultimately, ultimately lead to Jesus being destroyed, desecrated. And see if you stop and just meditate on how that all came about. Judas betrayed Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. From where? The temple. Remember when Judas felt guilty? But what he'd done, he went to the temple and he threw down the money. 
little echo of here. And, and here's the other thing. They whipped Jesus. The Romans whipped Jesus. Scourged him. Led him like a lamb to the slaughter. They saw him hanging on the cross. Cursed is he who hangs on a cross. They thought to themselves, that man's been exiled from the presence of God. That man's not worthy to receive the blessings of God. That man deserves the judgment of God. And guess what? He went through it all. Why? Love. Jesus was about the Father's business. He was about the f- fulfilling the Father's will. He was consumed. His thoughts were consumed with love for his people's salvation. Someone asked a question. We had a 20s and 30s meeting yesterday and it says, you know, what, what do I do when I don't feel like I love God? Here's an answer. Think upon the love of Christ for you. Passionate, fearless love for you. Think of what he had to go through for the penalty and punishment of sin to be paid. Now it's striking these men didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but verse 22 says, tells us the disciples came to understand. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, they realized Jesus was talking. They remembered this verse. They, they remembered this scene and they, they realized Jesus is the one who died and was raised on the third day. Now just as we wrap this up, let me finish off my biblical theology of the temple. John wrote this gospel, he wrote his letters, but he wrote Revelation. And you know what he says at the end of Revelation? I saw no temple in heaven. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And so John gives us his vision that the end we are headed to is we will dwell in the presence of God. No temple, no sacrificial system, no nothing. We will dwell in God's presence in a hindered fellowship. There will be nothing to distract us. Nothing that will lead us to think about our own business over God's business. We will have full zeal for God and worship. Our love will be consummated. We will truly and fully love Jesus. We will see his glory. And so here's here's the, the final point. We ought to be consumed, yes, with zeal for Christ because he's zealous for us and his Father's glory. We ought to be consumed with love because he's consumed with love for us. But we also ought to be consumed with hope. What are we waiting for? The day that we will dwell in God's presence because Christ, the Lamb, bore our judgment, covered us, washed us, purified us. Here's the end point. Why does John put the wedding feast at Cana, the cleansing of the temple, right next to each other? Well, because it probably happened one after the other. But also, these are the two things that Jesus did at his first coming. These will be the two things Jesus does at his second coming. He will cleanse his people because when we see him, we'll be made like him. 
He will drive out from the presence of God all those who have not trusted in him. And he will throw the marriage supper of the Lamb. They began his public ministry. They will be the beginning of the day that is coming. And may God hasten that day. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, Jesus reminds us in this passage his justice. He will execute his just judgment. He will bring about his justice on that day. The offer to you is incredible. Believe in him. Trust in him. He'll cleanse you, purify you. And he'll make you one of his very own bride. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are humbled when we think of your love and your zeal. How fiercely committed you were to your Father's glory and honor, plan and will. We're humbled at the thought of your love consuming you, driving you in all of your actions. We thank you for how this chapter of John's Gospel gives us a preview of what is to come. And so we pray that as your people we might respond appropriately, but we might ultimately be consumed with hope. Hope for the day when we will dwell in your presence. As we, as we come in just a few moments, Jesus, to sit around the table that you invite us to, you told your disciples the next time they will drink, the fruit of the vine will be with you in your kingdom. So may you use this meal to make us long to stir our hope for that day. We pray it in your precious and powerful name. Amen.